Welcome to this special edition of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with John Ahern. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background, making sure that everything is smoothly done and recorded and delivered to you. You were just listening to the opening measures of Bach's St. Matthew's Passion, and that uh, gives you an idea of the content of this podcast. Uh, John Ahern is with me. He is a PhD student in musicology at Princeton University, and he's done some teaching for us at Theopolis. He participated in our fellows program last year and not only played the organ for us during the courses, but also taught some on music and contemporary music. He's written some essays for the Theopolis website, and he's also published in First Things and other publications. We're delighted to have John as part of our team at Theopolis and delighted to have John today as a guest on this special edition of the podcast. We do hope to make this a, a, a semi-regular feature of the podcast, to have a music discussion, at least occasionally, and uh, with John and perhaps some others joining us. So, John, welcome. And uh, if you could take just a few minutes to introduce yourself to the audience and let people know what you do, what you're interested in, and uh, what you want to accomplish through these podcasts. Uh, thank you for that uh, flattering introduction, which I feel bears little resemblance to how you know, middling and mediocre I really am. But anyways, uh, it's, uh, this piece is a special piece to me. It's a great, it's a fitting piece to start uh, a podcast on sacred music for Theopolis with, because uh, I think I was maybe like uh, 11 or 12 years old when my older brother uh, became obsessed with this piece. <clears throat> he actually heard about it from a, a guy named Duck Schuler, and he became obsessed with the St. Matthew Passion. And I would hear it Every morning, he would blast it on his boombox using the CD player back in those arcane days. And it was the first time that I really became aware of sacred music as a category and that this was, this was a way of approaching setting the biblical text that was completely absent from my experience as a Christian. And that, that I wouldn't have been able to formulate it quite in that way as a 12-year-old but or 11 or 12-year-old, but... Uh, that sort of set me on a course at an early age to study sacred music. Since then, I've wandered earlier and earlier. I, I am currently writing my PhD dissertation on 15th century sacred music. And all the time I start hearing the call of 14th century, 13th century. And who knows, maybe I'll end up doing Gregorian chant eventually. But for right now, I'm, I'm very happily writing about, um, uh, you know, Franco-Flemish polyphonic music from the 15th century that practically no one has ever heard of. But, oh, you know, one of my personal goals is to make the sacred music of the church from every era a little bit more prominent in the mind of the average Christian listener. And my interests really dovetail with Theopolis in the sense that I think that the Theopolis vision for uh, returning to a more liturgical and culturally enriched form of Christian experience, uh, it fits really well with with what I'm trying to do with sacred music. Does that answer your question, Peter? Yeah. Was a bit maybe, rambly. Maybe I know. I, I know it's this is a dangerous question to ask to a student who's in the middle of writing his PhD, but maybe you could give us a little more detail about what attracted you to the particular composer that you're working on. Uh, what is it that he's doing that made him gave him your fascination? Yeah, I mean the. The boring answer to that question is that uh, practically nobody else has written about this composer, and that's what attracted me to him. Um, and his name is uh, Firminus Caron. He was contemporaries with other famous names like Okagem and Bounois, as we all know, you know, those household names. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, that was irony, just in case you couldn't tell. <laughs> um, the, he was coming a little bit before Josquin, Dupre, and maybe about 100 years before Palestrina. And what attracts me to that particular era of sound would be their approach to counterpoint. Um, you mentioned the, the piece I wrote for First Things. That really was sort of my personal explanation of why I find the, the music of this period so compelling. And that is that the composers are interested in writing, you know, music for three or four or five different voices, which are all sort of ontologically equal to one another. Uh, they all have an important role in the texture. It's not like there's one melody and a whole bunch of, you know, proletariat chords underneath being plunked out. It's It's this incredible texture of musical equals battling it out with one another. And that kind of conversational aspect of the music uh, really appeals to me. Uh, I 
I desperately wish we still had music like that being produced. Um, and, and we, we do in some circles, uh, but, uh, so that, that's what really interests me in 15th century music. Yeah. Well, one of the things that became kind of a uh, running joke through your uh, time at Theopolis uh, during the fellows program last year was your contempt for uh, 19th century music. And uh, I think, <laughs> if I recall rightly, it, it did have to do with the, the, the question of harmony and the kind of independent voices that you were talking about just a moment ago with har- harmony for Bach or earlier than Bach and probably and perhaps beyond Bach. Harmony is a, a kind of, it, it emerges from this multi-voiced polyphony. It's not a matter of matching chords with right. a melody line. Uh, so right. you find that more compelling musically, or do you find it more compelling theologically? Uh, what, what is it that makes that uh, more uh, attractive to you? Yeah. Well, we're really going for the jugular on this one. You've already brought up 19th century music. You know, this is gonna it's gonna get ugly quickly. Uh, yeah, I I wouldn't say that um, there's there's any kind of real moral grounds on which I object to um, more chordal music or that more modern notion of harmony. But I think it does uh, it represents an absence. You know, when 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 harmony just becomes reduced to a simple matter of the chords. And when you've got the piano or the guitar or the viola section just plunking out the chords or whatever it is, I think that that represents that, you know, we've we've gone from something more glorious to something less glorious. The conception of harmony, which is older, is much richer. And I think that more importantly than that, a lot of ancient authors and medieval authors saw that 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 conception of harmony in which you're dealing with multiple melodies, that represents metaphorically a lot of important social truths, uh, mm-hmm. truths say about how a marriage works, truths about how a family works, truth about how a society works. There maybe were even some dangerous thinkers who suggested that polyphony was a good metaphor for the Trinity. Um, but I, I wouldn't, you know, say that, you know, <laughs> too loudly in front of uh, people who are scared of social Trinitarian metaphors. But, uh, so that, th- that, no- that older notion of harmony is, uh, is, is one that is rich with potential application for, for how social interactions work, how, how so the social fabric is organized. And when you, and I don't think it's entirely coincidental that when you move into an era where the music works as sort of some kind of autocratic totalitarian melody tyrannizing over the texture, and then everyone else in the musical texture becomes sort of this machine to produce chords underneath. Mm-hmm. I think in such a moment, it's not coincidental that maybe the more uh, worrying forms of, of modern social organization or polity correlate with that moment in music as well. Mm-hmm. Right. You're, you're, seeing a, you're seeing an analogy there, not, not suggesting causation in either direction, I, I'm assuming. You might. But they're marking a change in sensibility or mentality or... Um, you know, marking a change in the, in the, in the, uh, maybe in the human soul in a sense, in the, in the attractions and uh, what, what, what the human soul is attracted to. Right. And I think that, that the connection to anthropology and the human soul is important because one thing that you see both ancient, uh, pagan and ancient Christian uh, authors insisting is that there's a connection between music and the human soul. They actually use the word harmony to describe the relation between soul and body, because what harmony is ultimately is trying to reconcile difference. That's what harmony is, reconciling difference. And what could be greater than the difference between body and soul? And what do you need in order to get those things to coexist? You need harmony. Um, And I think that, uh, you know, in an era when it's more difficult to reconcile those things, it's not, not coincidental that our notions of harmony also seems to be uh, Mm -hmm. atrophied. Um, This actually dovetails perfectly with the conversation on, on, St. Matthew Passion, and we're going to talk about Carol Berger and, and mm-hmm. Jeremy Begbie, but there's one quote of, of Berger's that I really liked um, in, in this uh, book that I recommended Peter and I look at, which is Bach's Cycle Mozart's Arrow. Um, that's by Carol Berger, and it's an essay on the origins of musical modernity. At the very end of, of his chapter on uh, how Bach conceives of time and eternity and, and so forth, he has this great quote, and that, that is, he says, if, if Bach could still see in harmony a metaphor for God, Goethe and Beethoven, by extension, 
was already speaking from another historical shore in which it is God who has become the metaphor for harmony. And I think that's the end of the quote. I think that's a really crucial distinction is that for Bach, harmony is the metaphor for God. But then you get this kind of very clever inversion of that enlightenment moment where God becomes a great metaphor for explaining the experience of listening to a Beethoven symphony or whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I was thinking of Berger as you were uh, discussing uh, uh, different notions of harmony there and uh, uh, one of the one of the points he's making about Bach in particular is that Bach is less interested in the uh, temporal ordering of his music, and he he finds mm-hmm. a kind of the Bach cycle of his title is a description of a of a pattern of music that uh, that Berger finds all over Bach, not just in the Saint Matthew's Passion, but in his preference for musical cycles, uh, in his uh, work on canons. He sees this there's this uh, there's a cyclical ordering that he links up with the, an idea of eternity. Uh, but what's interesting, one of the interesting aspects of that was the suggestion that uh, Bach is less interested in the temporal ordering, for example, of a fugue uh, than he is in trying to exploit the contrapuntal possibilities of the the subject that he begins with. Yes. So he, he invents a subject and then he's trying to work out the polyphonic, the polyphonic possibilities of it. And the way that those are put in order in the time of a piece of music matters less to him. Do you think that's a, an accurate description of what motivates Bach or what, uh, what his interests are? You know, I, I do think there's some truth to that. Um, and I, you know, I think we, we also looked a little bit at what Jeremy Begbie has to say about this question. Yeah. I think that uh, Begbie also had to kind of admit there is some, there is a genuine shift that happens between between say uh, Bach and Mozart. And it's, it's a shift that, that does occur in a really interesting crucible of history. I mean, Bach is writing the St. Matthew Passion in 1727 and Mozart is in full swing of his career at the end of the 18th century. So it's, it's a short amount of time, but in that time, Mm -hmm. um, something does shift in how composers think about how to organize music across time. And it, it is true. I think that, um, oftentimes the way Bach will write a fugue is, yeah, he'll get his contra- contrapuntal subject is, you know, his little opening melody. And then basically the way his mind is working is what is all of the, all of the potential configurations I can get out of this melody? What is the you know full potential? If I turn it upside down, if I make it go backwards, if I, you know, put it twice as slow, twice as fast, etc. And then three minutes later, he's like, "I'm okay, I'm satisfied, and he'll slap on an ending. Yeah. Um, and there's something about that to a, a modern sensibility that feels a little primitive. But from, you know, it's important to recognize that what we consider to be classical music, what we consider to be the normative greatest music ever written is like the symphony. And the yes. symphony is very much uh, predicated on the metaphor that music is basically like a narrative. If you've got 20 minutes of music, the way you structure that music is act one, act two, act three. In act one, you've got to create some kind of problem or tension. In act two, you've got to br- you know bring that tension to a breaking point. And then in act three, you've got to satisfy mm-hmm. the listener with some kind of emotional conclusion. And that's sonata form, right? That's how every symphony is structured uh, in some way or another. And if you go back to an earlier era, it it feels like there's an absence of something. But from Bach's perspective, that's narrative as a metaphor for music is not necessarily what he's interested in. He might be interested in dance as a metaphor for music, where, you know, the the thing that structures this piece of music across time is how many bars do the dancers need? And that's how he's going to structure all of his French suites and his English suites and his partitas and things like that. Or he, you know, it's almost when he writes a fugue, it's almost like he's a medieval scholastic and he's got some, Mm -hmm. some problem to solve and he's going to spin that as as far as it goes. And then he's done with that and he's going to move on to the next question in his, you know, Summa Theologica. Um, And there are many different metaphors for how you can think about structuring music across time. Narrative isn't the only one, but oftentimes if you live in the 21st century, if, and you've listened to classical music all your life, sometimes it feels like narrative is the, the obvious go-to way of structuring a 20-minute piece or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, w- w- the, the contrast that Berger is drawing is partly a contrast, you could say, of kind of the eschatology 
that's implied by the music. A uh, sonata form comes to a resolution, which suggests a kind of linear development toward a uh, a happy ending. It's it's a it's a romance. It's a romance with a happy ending, and there's a resolution of the tension that preceded it. Uh, but uh, the right. Uh, but the the alternative box the box way of going about it is in a sense open ended and potentially infinite. And Berger suggests that the way that he kind of closes out that infinity is just by circling back to the beginning. Or uh, there's a there's a rounding off of the music rather than a uh, a an ending that uh, is the conclusion of a storyline. He's drawing the connection between the circularity of box musical forms and the possibility for just an infinite development. A few could go on and on and on. And in order to bring it to some kind of closure, he brings it to this kind of circular closure. So that does seem to be a different, a different way of ordering time, but also uh, certainly for Berger, there's a different kind of eschatology involved. And for Bach, it's an eschatology that involves a, a preference for timeless eternity to the linear development of time. Right. And I think that there is, uh, I think Berger is right about something in there. I think that maybe that we can talk about the details of how he interprets the Christian theology and, and Bach's theology. But I think that there is some truth to that notion that the, the circularity as a feature in music is very common before, let's say, 1750. And after 1750, development becomes the big word that you use to describe how, how music unfolds. Whether we can connect that to connect that circularity to transcendental time and eternity mm-hmm. is a very different question, right? I mean, I mentioned dance as as a metaphor. Dance is an extremely circular thing. There mm-hmm. are, I mean, there are many things about life that are circular and cyclical, mm-hmm. and eternity. The idea that eternity is also best expressed as a metaphor uh, through a circle is itself maybe a, a questionable assumption. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Carol Berger it sort of immediately assumes that if something is circular in music, it must be a metaphor for God's time for eternity, that sort right. of thing. I, that seems like maybe a suspicious notion. But maybe what we can do is, is try to hear what, what Berger is pointing our attention to in the, in the St. Matthew Passion. Does yeah. that sound good? Sounds great. Yeah. So Berger is making this argument in, once again, it's his book, Bach Cycle Mozart's Arrow. It uh, came out in 2007. Um, and he's making a specific claim about uh, how Bach is structuring the opening chorus, Comptier uh, Tuchter, which is this this brilliant chorus. I mean, it's probably the most famous, famous large-scale piece that Bach ever wrote. It's got two choirs, two orchestras, an extra little choir of sopranos to sing a hymn. It's, it's a massive endeavor. And uh, it's it's got this incredible dialogue between the people who are observing uh, Christ's passion and then another set of people who are wondering, you know, what's going on? How, how could this be happening to Christ? And this, this back and forth of questioning between the two different choirs, it's, it's a little sad to listen to it in recording because you don't get that 3D effect of having two different choirs sing at you and, and have, be in conversation with one another. But uh, we'll listen to the opening ritornello, and this is an important term that Berger uses. The ritornello is a feature of Baroque, what's called Baroque aria form, and this is in uh, Baroque aria da capo form, this piece. And the aria da capo is basically an ABA form, and it's called da capo because da capo means to the head, and the way this would work is that a composer would write, uh, write a piece and he'd have it be in one emotional affect. That's one of the rules of Baroque music. You can only ever have one emotion per piece. And then to contrast this a little bit, he'd write a second section with a slightly different emotion. So the first section would be A, and the second section would be B. But that's emotionally unsatisfying, so you need to bring it back to the A. And for a lot of these composers, they were lazy or busy, and so they would just write da capo, which means go back to the head, go back to the A. Yeah. Now, the, to keep things interesting, sometimes they would have a varied da capo form. And the varied da capo form is uh, where you would have the A section come back, but it would, it would come back in a slightly different way, and in a way that would sort of synthesize and satisfy the listener. It would sort of include a little bit of both of the, the two sections, perhaps, 
and it would it would end the piece in a very final way. Actually, we we all probably are familiar with an example of of this happening, and that is from Handel's Messiah. This piece here. So that's Rejoice, Rejoice Greatly uh, from Handel's Messiah. And if you recall that piece from, you know, performances of Handel's Messiah, you might have heard, there's a moment where in that first A section, it transitions from that opening key, which is B flat, to F major. I mean, that's a subtle transition. You probably aren't tracking it unless you're a music nerd. But you have some kind of subliminal sense that you've moved to a different key. And if the piece just ended here, it would be unsatisfying. And, and this is what that sounds like. And in this in this moment, now we're we're in a different key. So the A section of this da capo now has created some sense of structural tension or dissonance where the, the opening was in one key, the close is in another key. We need to deal with that. But for now, what we're going to do is we're going to move on to the B section, which is this contrasting affect. It's a different emotional world and so forth. So this is the B section. And obviously what we want Handel to do at this point is to go back and finish it off in a satisfying way. And indeed he does. I don't need to play that, but he creates the A section in such a way that now the A section will both start and end in the same key. And that's that very da capo thing that basically makes it a satisfying ending. So then the question is, of course, why did I start talking about Handel's Messiah? Uh, the, the reason I'm talking about that is because Bach's opening to St. Matthew Passion deviates from this form. And it's one of those forms in the, eight, in the 17th and 18th century that would have been so common to listeners of this music that they would presumably notice every deviation from the form. I mean, it's, it's kind of arcane to us now to have to be listening to these sorts of things. But to them, this was just how every song in church or in an oratorio or an opera or whatever, maybe even popular songs were structured this way. And, you know, minor deviations make a difference. So the if you listen to the opening ritornello, which is the that opening sort of instrumental introduction to a piece for the for the Bach opening of St. Matthew Passion, he's going to present you the whole piece in sort of a shorthand form. And I'll play, let's see if we can play the whole thing of that. At this point, you can hear that the vocalists come in and they begin singing the piece in earnest. Uh, now, this is this is important to, to hear that because that's the whole piece in in like a shorthand form. But as the, as the piece develops, when the singers come in, he's gonna Bach is gonna do that very da capo thing where the A section is gonna start in one key and it's gonna end in another. So you can hear when the B section comes along that Bach is going to use this contrasting affect here. It's a much bouncier, happier, more uh, hopeful section of the piece. Sing, 
So then the question of anyone analyzing this piece or, or of somebody in the 18th century listening to the piece is, when is the A section going to come back? And Berger's whole point is, it doesn't ever really seem to come back. Bach never seems to get back to that A section. He Instead, he sort of blends the end of the B section in with the end of the A section. And you can sort of hear that moment uh, right here. This is the moment that Berger seems to be talking about, where Bach is going to take that more happy, uh, hopeful element of the B section. And then he's going to seamlessly, there's, there's, a, there's this wonderful moment where you all of a sudden know, oh dear, the piece is going to end and it's going to end in this dark E minor. Uh, there, there's a moment where the hope sort of gets extinguished a little bit. But exactly how that transition happens is it's so subtle and so seamless that you can barely notice it. And that's what Berger is very interested in. He feels that this is really a moment where uh, you can hear that Bach is conflating the different linear elements of time into a single moment. Let's see if we can hear it. If you can't hear it, you know, either that's a sign that you need to listen to more Baroque music, or it might be a sign that maybe Carol Berger was noticing something that isn't actually there in the music. Either of those is true, but let's see if we can hear that moment. What do you think? Could you hear it? I think so. Uh, can I can I ask a clarifying question or two? Of course. Yeah, it seems like the decapo itself has uh, it finishes off where it began, and so there would be a circularity to it. So, what? Why is it important for Berger that there's a varied decapo in this particular case? <laughs> that's that's a great question. I mean, is yes, right? Isn't the decapo already kind of kind of circular? I I think his point here is that. Uh, Whatever, you know, if, if you uh, sort of see that ABA as already a little maybe prone to the linear organization of time, where each of these has a distinct section beginning and end, and we're progressing through them, Bach seems to be going out of his way, unusually, to compress even further. And at the end, you're, you're getting this moment where all sorts of linear time elements are have have crashed into one another mm. and and there is uh, definitely some truth to that you know the the same matthew passion one of the things that's the most extraordinary about it is that it feels like there are all these different time planes happening you know there's this this first century world of the evangelist and the the text of the gospel and then there seem to be these reactions from us in our modern era you know in the 18th century German congregation singing mm -hmm. these hymns, you know, in a way that's applying this this gospel text directly into our contemporary lives. And then there's maybe a middle layer of time where the arias that are sung are typological or anagogical reactions to the gospel story that could either be in the story or they could be out of the story and more in a modern time. So, mm -hmm. so there are all sorts of different, different layers of time that are going on. But I think for Berger, this is an indication that Bach has neutralized time. Now that's funny to me, that word neutralize <laughs> seems so counterintuitive because I, to me, I'm all the more aware of time when I, when I hear that or when I think about the different layers of time in the St. Matthew Passion, to me, it does not neutralize it into some kind of transcendental wash of eternity. To me, I'm all the more aware of, of the timeliness of this piece. I don't know how, how you feel. Right. Yeah, no, I think wait, as you're des describing that, I'm thinking that sounds less like eternity and more like uh, what, what Begbie describes in Theology, Music, and Time. 
where he uses music to describe the multiple layers of experienced time. We have multiple rhythms going on at any moment where where, uh, time is an intersection of different, uh, uh, different, different temporal rhythms. And it seems like that's more what's going on in the, in the passion and not a cessation of time, but just to, just to clarify what I was hearing earlier. So the, the bouncier middle section, the B section, you're saying that that's being incorporated into that final section. You still hear the bounces a little bit, but it's back in the key of the A section, the original A section into the, back into that minor key and, and is, uh, mixed it's it's uh, overcome by that uh, that original section so you could have this as you right. said, kind of melding of these two different of these two different sections is that what i was hearing? right it's yes it's almost yes it's almost as if the, so there's that always that distinct moment in a in a typical aria da capo or ar- varied aria da capo there's that typical moment where the b section comes to an end and then you get your very prominent return of the a section material i mean every every aria in Handel's Messiah works this way, mm-hmm. but but in this particular moment, Bach seems to be obfuscating that distinction there and making that B section come to end in a very ambiguous way, and then suddenly you find yourself back in your dark E minor A section ending the piece. Yeah, and again, that seem that feels more to me like a uh, weaving together of different temporalities rather than a neutralization yes. of time yeah. or. Uh, as sometimes uh, Berger talks about a nesting of these different temporalities within a timeless eternity. As a theological matter, I, it's not the music that I'm reacting to so much as the implied theology there. Begbie has a good critique of that assessment of Christian time, that the Christian time has a has a preference and the uh, preference for timeless eternity and a desire to reach timeless eternity. That's the that's the ultimate aim of the Christian hope. Berger claims that, but uh, I think Begbie rightly says that that's, that misses some pretty key elements of the biblical picture. Can I shift the register if, if uh, unless you want to continue on the, along those uh, with that topic? Yeah, please. One of the things that comes up, uh, I guess, particularly in Begbie's discussion, but it's, I guess it, it is the overall framework of the, of the argument in Berger's book, which is the, the contrast of modernity and pre-modernity uh, in musical terms, I know this is something that interests you because this is kind of what you've written for uh, about for Theopolis. It's what you you've talked about. Yeah. Um, the, the the apparent tensions between contemporary music and uh, and traditional Christian music and and how that's resolved. But I thought uh, one of the, one of Bigby's points, which I thought was quite illuminating, was the the whole setup in some accounts of that is assumes that certain things are characteristic of modernity that are, that are in fact perfectly compatible with a traditional Christian outlook. One of the things mm-hmm. he talks about in in his discussion, it's not of Berger, but of another scholar writing on the St. Matthew's Passion, uh, is the, the notion of creativity as a note of modernity. Uh, and Begbie, I think, rightly says, you know, human creativity is part of the biblical picture, and it has a prominent place in in Christian thought. So it's not the fact that there's a, uh, a, uh, a kind of privileging of uh, human creativity or human invention is not necessarily a sign that somebody's moved out of a traditional Christian framework. Right. Yeah. I think that, I think that's correct. I think that, that, I mean, what better proof do you need that creativity and the Christian tradition are compatible than, you know, the glorious music that's been written, you know, in a pre-modern context, you know, the, the Christian sacred tradition, I think, is at its best in, in a pre-modern context. And that's, an, you know, an abundance of creativity there. Yeah. I think that there is um, one should tread cautiously when when dealing with particularly things like um, genius, the concept of genius and the concept of originality. You know, I think that uh, there's actually another great book on Bach by a scholar named Christoph Wolf. Um, and he talks about the notion of uh, creative genius with respect to Bach and with respect to Isaac Newton. And he points out in the introduction to his book how they're actually pretty much contemporaneous figures and their their uh, genius is talked about in, in sort of similar ways. Uh, but but there is a moment in around this era where um, genius becomes more, 
associated with the ability to produce innovation, to produce new ideas, new thoughts, new approaches. That I think there's there's good reason to be suspicious of, of that. Obviously, innovation is a good thing. You know, I, I'm actually a fan of the notion of contemporary Christian music, even if I'm not always a fan of how it's implemented in, in practice. But uh, at the same time, there there is nothing wrong with with rehashing old things. I think that the suspicion uh, toward that very much does come from a more 19th century notion of genius. There's actually a great example in, in Bach. So Bach wrote, so far as we know, he wrote three passions. He wrote a St. Matthew, a St. John, and those are both very famous. He also mm-hmm. wrote a St. Mark passion. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not very famous at all because largely what he did was he just sort of took pre-existing music of his and fit it into a passion narrative. And that's, that's what he did. And actually, you know, Handel does this. Composers have been doing this for ages and ages and ages where they'll take pre-existing things and sort of refab them for, for a, a given context. And I think that it's, it's a little sad that we're, we tend to demean that, that sort mm-hmm. of way of approaching things when that's, that can be very practical. It can actually be enjoyable to, hear old things done in a new way. Um, so, you know, that's a very granular example. But I, I think that, yes, creativity is is obviously compatible with a, not just modernity, but a, a more Christian understanding, so long as we can make a few interventions in, in certain situations where uh, notions of individual creative genius or originality can be treated with some suspicion where deserved. Right. Yeah. And, and Bigby does distinguish between certain un- understandings, modern understandings of creativity and what he sees in uh, the Christian right. tradition. Uh, it's not as if, and, and he said, you know, he doesn't think that for Bach, uh, Bach thinks he's confronted with a world of disorder and chaos and he needs to impose order on it. Yes. But on the other hand, he's not simply, simply uh, imitating uh, what's there. There's, there's a certain kind of uh, perfecting of, uh, of what's, yes. what is, what's in the natural order that occurs in the composition of the music. So it's, there's a com- combination of creativity and, uh, and acknowledgement and, and conformity to the order of things as, that, that's already given. That, and I mean given in, the, in a full theological sense that it's, it's a gift so you acknowledge the gift, and then there's a there's a proper kind of response to it that uh, enhances and beautifies the gift. Uh, I was curious, Peter, to get your uh, your reaction to the um, Karl Barth quote <laughs> that uh, Berger had mentioned. Uh, y- yeah, do you want to like read, read that it? and react to it? I I think we have to include it in here. Yeah, I, I, let me read it. This is from Berger's book, and uh, Barth is talking about the Saint Matthew's Passion. It is a single sea of clouds, wonderfully undulating to be sure, but in almost uninterrupted minor and consisting of sighs, laments, and accusations, cries of terror, pity, and compassion, a funeral ode that concludes in in an outright dirge that is neither defined nor determined by the Easter message and in uh, in which Jesus the victor remains entirely mute. How long before the church realizes this and how long before the untold thousands who may know only this one version of the gospel's passion story are told that what we have here is an abstraction and that it is certainly not the passion of Jesus Christ, <laughs> unquote. <laughs> Come on. I didn't follow up the footnote. Is that from Bart's book on Mozart? <laughs> you know, that- I, it might be. It's, it's 1955. I did look up the date. I, but- yeah, actually, um, yeah. Um, it may be. I think it may be from the Church Dogmatics. I think that's what it's from. Yeah, um, I think that's uh, it's quite a striking, quite a striking passage. Uh, two things that I, 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 two reactions to it. One is uh, maybe Berger goes on to point out uh, it's a bit unfair because uh, Bach was, after all, writing a uh, writing a passion for Good Friday. <laughs> so the the t- the tonality is going to be different on Good Friday than it is on Easter. And Bach wrote plenty of Easter resurrection-related uh, music, so I think there's a there's a bit of unfairness. On the other hand, I do think that Bart is onto something. I think there's a a long-standing form of piety within the Christian Church that maybe is particularly fed by certain kinds of church music, 
that uh, focuses on the cross as the one event of our redemption and uh, a cross in a, in a in a certain kind of way, a kind of identif- identification with the cross, the projection of the singer to the foot of the cross and trying to re-experience the cross, uh, a, uh, a focus on the, on the sufferings of Jesus. Uh, I think there's a certain kind of piety that circulates around that, that does tend to block out and, and uh, neglect the fact that the cross is uh, one moment of the redemptive uh, of our redemption. It's not the full, the full story of redemption. And I, I think the, the key, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if, if uh, Christ is not raised, then we are still in our sins. The key to our redemption, the key to our release from sin is resurrection. Uh, it has to follow the cross. They have to go together. Uh, but a cross by itself is not a redeeming event. Uh, so insofar as uh, Bart's upset about that kind of piety uh, and that kind of piety reflected in, in, in Christian music, I think he's onto something. Uh, probably unfair to, Bar- uh, to Bach, though. I don't know. It sounds like you're criticizing Bach. I, I maybe I need to leave now. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm joking. I, I, I think you're you're absolutely right, and I think that there's also uh, an interesting historical thing to take into consideration. I, you know, I read this. And I immediately thought of an an early recording of the St. Matthew Passion from around this time. This is 1971, uh, Carl Richter, uh, but Carl Richter was uh, conducting uh, the St. Matthew Passion all through the 60s, and and potentially Bart was thinking of uh, a a conductor like this or a performance like this when he talked about it. I'll play a little bit for you, and you'll see it does really sound like a funeral dirge when it's played in this way that they did in the 1960s. I mean that's that's a drastic difference. Yeah, that does sound like. And a, I'll, I'll play a, a sea of undulating clouds. That's what that's what that sounds like. It does, and just just for contrast, this is the recording that I chose today. It's by Paul McCreesh, and, and his tempo is very different. Etc. Yeah. And uh, one thing I just wanted to note, um, I, I should have noted earlier that we're listening to Paul McCreesh's recording of this piece. Um, he was interviewed, I forget by who, maybe the Telegraph or, or one of the British newspapers. He was interviewed after the recor- recording came out because people were upset at how fast he was taking this. Mm. I mean, the tempos have been getting faster in recordings as musicologists discover that Carl Richter's really slow tempo from the 60s is not accurate. Mm. But uh, McCreesh is taking it faster than anyone else had. And he was interviewed and they, and they asked him, well, why did you take this piece so fast? And it was interesting. McCreesh, who is very famously an agnostic, he's, he's not a Christian, but he, he replied that he felt like, theologically speaking, <laughs> everyone needed to understand that for Bach, this piece was as much a celebration as it mm. was uh, you know, a sad thing. Mm-hmm. And and he said, really, we need to understand that Bach's musical idiom is always rooted in the dance and it's rooted in the reality that Easter is coming two days after this performance. Mm. Um, and so he felt that 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 opening rhythm in the in the cellos, the dum, 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 dum rhythm there, it, there's, there's something ominous about it, yes, but there's also something that is aware that in two days it's going to be Easter and, and there's a certain celebration to that as well. Hmm. And I, I chose that recording because that's such an interesting anecdote in with respect to this, this Carl Bart quote. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. And uh, if I could ask a, uh, a kind of nerdy question, how do musicologists discover what pace music was played at in box day? Oh, that's a complicated, very, I mean, do we have another hour to, to talk about <laughs> Maybe maybe we can have like a, a pay only version of the podcast in which we talk about that fascinating question. Um, it, the, basically, the short answer is that um, it's 
it's it's complicated, but you you can do uh, maybe external evidence like uh, you might read descriptions of how people talk about the music and what they say about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not very reliable because it's it's tempo. But you can also do um, uh, density analysis. This is something that that a lot of people do. You can look at uh, sort of what the fastest note value in a given piece is and and you can project from there you can say well what's technically the fastest that one could reasonably expect a person to play these fast notes and then you can work backwards from there to sort oh. of create a, a sense of tempo so th- there are various different approaches uh but definitely it, it's not a science it's it's uh or if it is a science it's a very inaccurate one but but definitely as as people studied the music more and more in the 70s and 80s they came to the conclusion that something faster than Richter, maybe not quite as fast as McCreesh, but something in between is, is probably the sweet spot. Yeah. Yeah. And that would have, I think that would have changed Bart's response to it. If he had, had heard the other uh, recording. I don't know. I mean, Bart's Bart is saying that Mozart is better than Bach. I, d- I don't know how we can trust his musical taste at all, frankly. But. <laughs> so John, as we're, as we're coming to a close, um, We've been discussing different different aspects of box music and and of uh, the Saint Matthew's Passion in particular. But what kind of uh, lessons or conclusions can contemporary church musicians and composers uh, draw from this kind of this kind of music? What what uh, what is Bach teaching the contemporary composer? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think you could go a, a couple different directions. If you read the historical literature on the passions, you'll discover that Bach was constantly having disputes with his, you know, town consistory or whatever the term, you know, that he was in Leipzig at the time at the Thomas Kirche or something like that. And, and the, the, the basically the elders of his church, they were really always giving him a hard time about this or that. And he was maybe a little bit cantankerous with them and, and, you know, very predictable. But uh, one, of, one of the things that always just strikes me is that uh, Bach really thrived under, uh, thrived under strictures. You know, he had a, one, one thing we know a lot about is his budget. He had like a pretty limited budget, even at his best churches. Uh, I said at the beginning, this piece was two choirs, two orchestras, but very likely he had about 40 people in total. You know, he might've had two singers on a part, 16 singers total, um, you know, a handful of musicians that he could grab if he could, but you know, he didn't have an unlimited budget and he, you know, he created this out of it. Um, I think that, that that's, that's very cool. The other thing to think about is that he did this one year and the next year he did something else, you know, (laughs) this, this was something that he clearly considered to be very important, but at the same time, he saw his job as like a church composer who's creating music for the occasion. Mm-hmm. And he created the music for the occasion. And then the following year he moved on and created something else. Mm-hmm. And I think that that that's almost an irreverent attitude. How could you possibly create this and then just move on and do something else? This is um, amazing. And yet at the same time, the kind of paralysis that I think um, some traditionalists feel about creating new music when we've got all this great music in the past, that's, that's kind of paradoxical because if, if you feel that paralysis just because we've achieved great things in the past, you're, you're doing precisely the opposite of what they did, which is to produce a ton of great music. And for all the great music that these composers did produce, there were, you know, some lemons in there. (laughs) Uh, We can, we can let history figure that one out. Um, So that's one thing that comes to my mind whenever I read this, the stories about Bach, creating this this kind of music yeah just one testimony to that i guess that the bach is doing uh things for his the congregations he's working for he's given a he's given a task am i right in remembering that the was it this passion that was or maybe you know much of Bach's music as a whole was lost forgotten for several generations is, is this is this passion one that was neglected for uh, a century or yeah. more Yes, I believe it was. So this was in uh, 1727. And I think then in the 1820s or 30s, Mendelssohn, among others, uh, sort of resurrected it and said, well, this is kind of a cool piece. Yeah. Uh, You know, you know, you could say that this was forgotten, or it might be more accurate to say that it really didn't actually occur to people until the 19th century, 
to remember the works of previous composers. Um, you know, for instance, did Bach know about the guy I'm studying, Firminus Caron, for my dissertation? He, he very likely had no idea. Um, and Bach might have had a very hazy idea who Josquin was and maybe some idea of who Palestrina was. But, but really, it, it turns out that as you go through history, um, people have pretty hazy ideas about the music in their own past. Yeah. And, and really, the, the 19th century was the moment where people became obsessed with, with uncovering these lost works and, and that sort of thing. And that's great. I, I, I mean, obviously, if, if the 19th century hadn't done that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have a job. I mean, I'm doing that myself. I'm, I'm uncovering the works of lost composers. But I think that there, you know, there is some value in liberation to at some point learning the lessons from the past and then plowing ahead and actually imitating them rather than just, you know, rehashing them endlessly in a performance or whatever. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.